This is more of a, of a, a global menace than Al-Qaeda, quite frankly, ever was. That's CIA Director John Brennan. He says for the Islamic State, or ISIL, the world can be their playground. Already, the terror group is geographically dispersed in Iraq and Syria, and they're leveraging existing organizations in places like Nigeria. Brennan spoke at the Aspen Security Forum in July. He's the featured speaker on today's podcast. This is Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Brennan says ISIL has gained traction with such speed that it's dwarfed the presence of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, at its height, uh, had you know, thousands of individuals and a much smaller number of hardcore fighters. ISIL is not just a terrorist organization in terms of perpetrating these horrific attacks outside. It is a military organization. It has you know, established this, you know, its own government. It has control over these very large areas. And it also has utilized the, the digital domain. Brennan discusses several issues pertinent to the security of the United States. He's interviewed by NPR's counterterrorism reporter, Dina Temple-Rastin. So I wanted to talk to you about ISIS and uh, cyber in Russia and uh, China and Iran and Syria. So we should get through that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, Eric Schmidt of the New York... Yeah, look at your watch. So Eric Schmidt of the New York Times uh, just wrote an article a couple of days ago that was talking about a trove of new intelligence that uh, we found uh, in Manbij. Did I say that right? Uh, and uh, Brett McGurk has... Uh, said that it has offered new clues to foreign fighter flows related to ISIS. Um, some people have compared it to the Sinjar documents uh, that uh, were received quite some time ago. Could you talk a little bit about this trove of documents, why they're important, and um, how it might help uh, stem the foreign fighter flow uh, to ISIS? Well, whenever we or our allied forces are able to overrun terrorist compounds, we obviously want to gather up a lot of information. I think the, the best example of how successful that has been was at the Abbottabad compound, when the, uh, the troops that went in there were able to take out you know, bags upon bags of information in terms of documents as well as other materials, whether they be computers or phones or whatever else. And so Mambij, which is in the northern part of Syria, where ISIL really had its roots dug in there, and it was used as a place where uh, terrorists would be able to go across the border, both into and out of Syria. It was a place where a lot of the foreign fighters were located and external operations. Some of them were generated there. And so the, this assault by the forces, uh, the local forces there, supported by the, the coalition and the U.S. military, has been able to gain a fair amount of ground in that area and overrunning a number of those compounds. So that's, that it's called SSC, the Sensitive Site Exploitation. It's the materials that are taken so that we can use that as intelligence, so we can find out who they are, what connections they have, where they come from, what type of contacts they have, what are their sources of whether it be funding or weapons, whatever else. So just like in Abbottabad, the take in Manbij has the potential to really provide us new and additional insights that we can use to destroy ISIL. And, and are they dossiers of foreign fighters, where they're from, how they're connected? Or is it can be all of the above. Uh, it could be, as I said, hard copy documents, uh, as well as phones or computers or other types of things. And so the exploitation of that is very important. If it's text documents, you can sort of see it and read it or whatever. Sometimes 
obviously a lot of translations, because it's not just Arabic, there are a lot of other languages that are spoken by a number of these individuals. But if it is some type of media, computers or phones, sometimes it takes a while to be able to exploit it because you need to be able to get into it, you need to be able to decrypt it if necessary, you need to be able to process it, translate it. And so what we're trying to do is to make sure we're able to use that information in as timely a fashion as possible. And so it's not just in the Manbij area, it's in other areas of Syria and Iraq where coalition and support of the local fighters on the ground have been able to overrun these areas and we exploit it for intelligence purposes. Okay. So in the last session, Brett McGurk was just talking about Mosul and Raqqa and uh, assaults that will happen there. And I want to ask you what happens after that happens uh, to ISIS. If Raqqa is taken away from ISIS, if Mosul is taken away from ISIS, is there a stabilization plan? And does ISIS become, in a sense, more of an intelligence problem than a military problem? Because instead of being in one place that the military can watch or surround, they scatter. Uh, does it become more of a problem for people in, in your agency? Well, thinking about uh, Raqqa and Mosul, they are much larger than Manbij, and Manbij has been a tough fight. It's street-to-street -street fighting in Manbij City, and the area around Manbij City also is infested with the ISIL terrorists. Raqqa, a couple hundred thousand folks, Mosul, over a million, and uh, I don't think ISIL is just going to evacuate. Maybe they will, and they may try to find refuge somewhere else so they can use another area uh, to launch their attacks. But I think it's going to take some time and it's going to be tough fighting. And as you point out, one of the challenges is going to be is once it's assaulted and once it's liberated, what type of security force is going to be able to come in? What type of reconstruction effort is going to be able to be undertaken? How are we going to ensure that the people, the inhabitants there, are going to be able to return and live normal lives? And so the amount of destruction that has taken place in Syria, it has been devastating. And trying to repair that country as well as Iraq. And so if there's going to be an assault on, on Raqqa and Mosul, you're going to have, unfortunately, a lot more damage. You're going to have a lot more casualties. Uh, and then the rebuilding process, both from a security standpoint as well as the construction work that has to go on, the health needs of the people. And one of the most devastating aspects of this conflict is that we've lost an entire generation of individuals, Syrians and Iraqis, who have not been able to, to go to school. They've been brought up in an environment of militarism, of violence, that's all they know. They don't have any skills that they can use when hopefully peace is going to return to the, those countries. So this is a long problem, a uh, long-term problem in terms of making sure that we're able to provide the security that is necessary, working with the local forces, but then having a plan as far as stabilization, security, uh, rebuilding, administration, and then having governments in the capitals that are going to truly represent the multi-confessional, multi-sectarian nature of the peoples that are there that has been the root of this, this problem. And do you see it as being a problem that suddenly they'll be spread out in more places and more difficult, or are they more difficult to track, or are they already like that? So it's sort of... Right now they have geographically dispersed themselves in both Iraq and in Syria. I think they have large swaths of territory under their control, and more and more of that is being liberated. I think we've made some great progress over the past year. Uh, they're going to scatter, not just in the theater there, but out outside. There are a number of ISIL franchises that have already been established in the Sinai in Egypt, in Nigeria, other areas. We have their presence in South Asia and Southeast Asia. This is more of a, of a, a global menace than Al-Qaeda, 
quite frankly, ever was. Al-Qaeda, at its height, uh, had you know, thousands of individuals and a much smaller number of hardcore fighters. ISIL is not just a terrorist organization in terms of perpetrating these horrific attacks outside. It is a military organization. It has you know, established this, you know, its own government. It has control over these very large areas. And it also has utilized the, the digital domain in ways far superior to Al-Qaeda. Uh, this generation of terrorists within ISIL are ones that have grown up in, the, in a technologically rich world. And so they have made very sophisticated use of all the different types of apps and communication systems. And they have put together a structure, an infrastructure in Syria and Iraq that really is quite difficult to attack and uncover. And so the world can be their playground in many respects, unfortunately. And they've been able to find ways in Africa and Asia and Europe to be able to exploit opportunities in those, those countries. One of the reasons why a number of the ISIL franchises have really been able to gain momentum quickly is that they've been able to uh, leverage existing organizations. For example, in Nigeria, it was Boko Haram. Mm -hmm. Now it's Islamic State of West Africa. Inside of Egypt, there was a group called Beit al-Makdis uh, that was responsible for a number of attacks in the Sinai. They then raised the ISIL flag and were able to bring down a, a Russian airliner soon thereafter. So ISIL has been this phenomenon that has gained such traction at such speed that has dwarfed Al-Qaeda's presence. Now that doesn't mean that Al-Qaeda is not still a very serious and strategic threat. They are. They still have people, whether it be Afghan pak region, Syria, there's Al-Qaeda in Syria called Jabhat al-Nusra, as well as in Yemen. So we're seeing now a, 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 the phenomenon of ISIL, the continued challenge of Al-Qaeda, that is really destroying not just people and places, but uh, also generations that are just on the verge of coming into the modern day economy. Well, since you bring up ISIL and Al-Qaeda in sort of the same sentence, uh, when ISIL first started growing up, one of the things that we were talking about in uh, the terrorist uh, terrorism analysis community was, was there ever going to be a competition between Al-Qaeda and ISIS? What, what was that competition going to look like? Was one going to try and have a bigger attack than the other? Uh, or were they going to end up cooperating together? Um, how do you see that playing out? Is there a competition? Are we beginning to see the, the beginnings of it? I, I think there, there has been competition for the last several years. I think, as you know, ISIL used to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And then it was you know, Al-Qaeda in the Levant, and the Al-Qaeda elements within Iraq and Syria had merged, and we had one organization. Then there was a split within the organization, which led to Jabhat al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda in Syria, and ISIL. And so there is great competition between their leadership. There's also competition between the rank and file. Now, in some areas, they will collaborate on the battlefield. And we see in places, not just in Syria, where there has been this tactical cooperation at times. For example, where? Well, in, in areas where they both are facing uh, Syrian regime forces. It doesn't mean that they work together in the battlefield. It may mean that ISIL's on one side, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra's on another side, and so and they're the efforts, they're not shooting at each other, they're shooting at a common enemy. Right. But we also see places like Yemen, where ISIL has a foothold, and Al-Qaeda has several thousand individuals there that are, have launched an insurgency. There is cooperation among a number of individuals there. So I don't see these organizations merging. I do think that there's still going to be a separation among them. Uh, but if there's going to be leadership change, you will see that I think some of the elements of both 
will find ways to come together to go against the common enemy. And the common enemy can be Shia, which is another distinguishing feature of ISIL. Al-Qaeda really never had a great anti-Shia part of its terrorist engine. It was always focused on the West, the United States, and Western influence. Al-Qaeda in, in ISIL in, in Iraq really has been driven a lot by the alienation that a lot of the Sunni community feel inside of Iraq from a government in Baghdad that they believe is Shia-dominated, manipulated by Iran, and has not taken into account the needs of the very large number of Sunnis within, within Iraq. So I think you're going to have these you know, fissures and competitions between the various groups because either they have different agendas ideologically, and ISIL is, has carried out obviously much more horrific attacks in some respects than Al-Qaeda. In fact, Al-Qaeda has, has condemned uh, some of the attacks that ISIL has carried out. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. This talk from the Aspen Security Forum in July features CIA Director John Brennan and NPR's Dina Temple-Rastin. Brennan mentioned Al-Qaeda has condemned ISIL's brutality. In August, Al-Qaeda's leader Ayman al-Zawahiri encouraged his followers to reject ISIL and support the Taliban. In the past, al-Zawahiri denied any links to ISIL. Dina Temple-Rastin of NPR continues the conversation. So, if you were a fly on the wall of Al-Qaeda's next board meeting, presumably before the drone strike took place, um, what do you think uh, al-Zawahiri would be telling his management team right now? I would remind them that, as Osama bin Laden said, this is a long game. Al-Qaeda is, means the foundation. It is the foundation upon which the rest of this, this crusade, I hate to use that term for them, the crusade is going to spring from. So we knew it was going to be a long game. We've been at this now for 25 years or so. But we need to make sure that we're not going to be dwarfed and put in the background as ISIL has gained this attention, attraction, and has been able to generate a lot of support within the Muslim community. So I think that if I were Zawahri, uh, I would be telling folks, we need to stick with our game plan, but we need to operationalize more of it. We need to be able to move forward with getting some attention and, and fulfilling the, the vision of a bin Laden in terms of striking against the West striking against those influences that are corrupting the Muslim community. Uh, so uh, I think he realizes that uh, he's not able to compete in some respects on the global stage with ISIL right now, but that uh, he wants to make sure that their strategic plan is going to be uh, pursued uh, with the, the adherence that they have in a number of, of, of areas and countries. So what ISIL is uh, renowned for now is these small attacks that have ripple effects that, that make them maybe not, uh, there isn't a big body count, although there was in Paris, but rather it gives a huge impression even if there are only a dozen people who have died. Whereas Al-Qaeda is known for its, its big attacks. Is Al-Qaeda still uh, trying for that big attack? The challenge for the counterterrorism community, whether you're talking about ISIL or Al-Qaeda, we have to be prepared and deal with those attacks that can take place very quickly with very little planning, as well as those uh, plots that are intended to have strategic impact and take multiple years and usually take a lot of people. I think Al-Qaeda at this point is still you know, not given up on the larger attacks. 
but uh, when we look at al-Qaeda inside of Syria, they are looking at how they can, in fact, carry out an attack given the increased security, for example, in Europe. We know that uh, al-Qaeda uh, continues to have adherents and supporters and people uh, in Europe, uh, as well as in Africa and Asia. So uh, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's one or the other. Um, the, the, the challenge with ISIL really has been that they've compressed the execution period of carrying out attack significantly. Like 9-11 attack took a long time. It was very deliberate, the planning. Uh, ISIL has been able to compress into weeks or months the ability to have an idea or have a person who is positioned to do something and to carry it out. And as you said, you know, a number of these are very limited in terms of who's involved. But if you look at you know, some of the attacks, they, they can kill you know, dozens upon dozens of people. And I think they see that operational cadence being very important, that they don't want to have long lag times in between attacks. And uh, they want uh, attacks to take place in different places, but to maintain their, uh, the notoriety and the headlines. Well, I think this is one of the issues, too, that uh, in trying to cover ISIS and its attacks, it seems that um, in the old days, in Al-Qaeda days, you used to have to actually go to a camp and train, and you used to have religious training with Al-Qaeda and swear bayat to, uh, to Osama bin Laden. But it seems that people get credit for being an ISIS adherent just by having a brief flirtation online with the group. And I wonder if by calling something an ISIS attack so readily, which we seem to do, whether or not we're giving ISIS more credit than it deserves. When you say calling something an ISIS attack that we're so, prone to do, you're talking about the media, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, 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 I just wonder if you can't say that it's an opportunistic attack yeah. as opposed well, to Well, I think, ISIS as you point out, Al Qaeda, there was almost a talk about hazing there was almost a rite of passage in order to belong to Al-Qaeda. Right. You had to almost apply, and you had to be vetted, and you were then part of this secret club. Uh, ISIL is much different. Uh, you don't have to have that type of sort of application process. It is they have uh, trumpeted you know, who they are, and they want to have adherence, whether or not you are with us in this theater or you're far away. You can demonstrate your adherence and your allegiance to what it is that we're trying to do by your actions alone. And that's why they have made great use of the internet in terms of directing people, encouraging people, giving them instruction about how these attacks can take place. And so when something happens and we look and see whether ISIL is going to claim credit for it, sometimes I think ISIL doesn't know themselves. And I think most times they don't. If somebody who has been incited and encouraged by ISIL, they have no idea if that was the real motivation. Even if somebody is found with literature in their apartment that might reflect you know, a sort of ISIL's you know, narrative, that doesn't mean that they carried it out for that. It may mean that they you know, woke up that day and wanted to commit suicide and wanted to take other deaths down with them. But it is part of ISIL's strategy to have people that they can deploy directly, that they can support directly, as well as to encourage and provide indirect uh, direction and incitement to individuals. So they will claim credit for a lot of things and they feel as though this is part of their brand, uh, as opposed to Al-Qaeda, which I haven't seen Al-Qaeda really try to embrace actions that were taken that didn't have 
al-Qaeda's fingerprints, operatives or somebody as part of it. And that was always al-Qaeda's rules of the road, right? That attacks needed to be certified by the center. In yeah, some way. and as we saw, including from some of the materials that were taken from the Ababa compound, uh, bin Laden was very concerned about the large number of Muslims that were dying in al-Qaeda attacks and felt as though the al-Qaeda brand was really tarnished as a result of that. And we're trying to have them be much more surgical so they wouldn't go after Muslims, they would go after, in their view, the non-believers. ISIL, as we see, has killed uh, in very you know, demonstrable ways Muslims of all different stripes, and not just Shia, Sunnis, who are, they believe are you know, apostates because they have not joined the ISIL bandwagon. So, uh, you know, it, it, they have a very broad aperture in terms of who is eligible to be killed as part of their terrorist agenda. Well, I think al-Qaeda um, is willing to absorb collateral deaths, but the focus of it, I think, is still that sort of Western influence that they believe has pervaded their communities. So let me shift gears just a little bit. We've been talking a lot about Syria while we've been here the last couple of days. As you see it, what's the end game there? Boy, I hope there's an end game in Syria. I really do, because of the, the destruction that has taken place in that, in that country. And it is a remarkable and beautiful country, and it certainly was beautiful people that has been now beset by this. I believe that there's going to be no end game, even in sight, as long as Bashar Assad stays in Damascus. Because he is, in large part, the reason why so many Syrians are fighting. And when I'm talking about the Syrians, I'm talking about you know, good, bad, and the ugly. Whether or not you're talking about the Free Syrian Army, those that defected from the Syrian government and the army to fight against the dictator who was lobbing Scud missiles and chemical shells onto his people. But also all of those who have taken up the, the terrorist or extremist banner as well. So we need to be able to have some sense that Assad is on the way out. There can be a transition period, but it needs to be clear that he is not part of Syria's future. Until that happens, until there is at least the beginning or the acknowledgement of that transition, you're going to have Syrians dying, continue to die, because they, many of them are trying to reclaim that country for the good of future, Syria's future, but many of them also want Syria to be the safe haven for terrorists. So I don't know whether or not Syria can be put back together again, whether it's going to be some type of confederal structure where the various confessional groups are going to have the, the lead in governing their portions of the country. You know, we've looked at the different parts of the country and which ones could be self-sustaining, which ones would rely so much on sort of external assistance. Uh, most of the people in Syria are in that western spine of the country. The large portions of the eastern part of the Syria are, are desert and, and limited uh, urban centers. Uh, so I don't think also you're going to be able to have some semblance of, of tranquility in Syria until you're also able to address the Iraq issue. And that's why I think this administration, President Obama, gets a lot of credit for trying to look at what we need to do in both countries so that they can, what we're doing is going to be complementary to this effort. But we're still a long way from having, I think, the, the governments in both capitals that are going to be viewed by the bulk of the population as being representative of the peoples of both, both countries. And Syria has a much more, greater mix of individuals in terms of religions and backgrounds and ethnicities than, than Iraq does. I mean, Iraq still has quite a few, but in that western portion of Syria, years ago, they would live side by side. Christians and Shia and Sunni and, and even, even Jews that were there. Uh, but there's been so much blood spilled 
I don't know whether or not we're going to be able to get back to that uh, in certainly my lifetime. Do you think the Russians want a solution there? The Russians, yes, I think they want a solution on their terms. Uh, they want to preserve their more than 50-year investment in Syria. They have a legitimate concern about terrorism emanating from that area. There are several thousand Russian citizens that have found their way into Syria and Iraq and are foreign fighters. Probably another 5,000 or so from the former Soviet republics that are down there. So terrorism is a concern, and they see what is happening. At the same time, uh, they want to keep Bashar Assad regime in power. Uh, and we've worked with the Russians, and we're continuing to try to work with the Russians to convince them that there needs to be a political path in, to the future for Syria, because this is not going to be resolved on the battlefield. You know, several hundred thousand individuals have died as a result of this conflict, and if Assad stays there, I think we're going to see more carnage. There needs to be some way, way out. So I think the Russians need to come to terms with the fact that Assad has to go. Not, we don't want him to go overnight. The last thing the U.S. government wants is for the government in Damascus to implode. We don't want to collapse that government. We want to maintain the institutions of governance because they are the ones who are going to have to pick up the pieces. But Assad has lost all legitimacy, all right to leading the Syrian people. And as soon as he starts heading toward the exit ramp, I think we're going to make progress so that we can use the guns that are fighting with each other now, like the Free Syrian Army against the Syrian military, use those guns and that energy against the terrorists so we can purge that area. But that's why I think what we're trying to do is work the military front, work the security front, as well as the political front. And I wish the Russians would pay more attention to the political front. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. This talk, held at the Aspen Security Forum in July, features CIA Director John Brennan and Dina Temple-Rastin, NPR's counterterrorism correspondent. Next, Temple-Rastin asks Brennan whether Vladimir Putin is a tactical thinker or a strategic thinker. He's a misguided thinker. Uh, that's not a choice. Uh, <laughs> okay, then he is in the tactical side of the thinking. So, so Arena. help us understand uh, Putin a little better, because I would think that if he was a strategic thinker, you could try and anticipate what he was going to do. But if he's a tactical thinker, doesn't that make it harder for you to try, you in the intelligence community, to try to anticipate what he'll do next? Right, and what we try to do in the intelligence community, whether it's a Putin or somebody else, we identify what are the factors, what are the drivers behind his actions, what are the considerations in terms of what he's trying to achieve. So you look at Ukraine. Uh, it was an emotional reaction there. He was very concerned that Ukraine was drifting westward, was going to join the EU and NATO, whatever, and he was going to stop it at whatever cost. So he was able to go into Crimea and basically annex it and then take control through the separatists of the eastern part of Ukraine. Now, sanctions are still in place against Russia. It continues to face serious economic problems. We're no closer to having a solution inside of Ukraine. And so where does he go from here? Well, he's hoping that over time that the West and Europe and the United States are going to get tired with the sanctions regime. No. Now, in Syria, he moved into Syria in September of last year with major military force to stop the collapse of the Assad regime. And the Assad regime was really on its back heels, and the opposition was doing much better. So he's in there now, and he's trying to buck up, and he has uh, improved the, the position of the regime forces on the battlefield. But where is he going from here? 
what is he going to do as far as the political steps that are going to try to address the longer term and strategic challenges that, that he and we face so that he can preserve his interests? Syria is the most complicated issue I've ever had to deal with in my national security career, bar none, because there are so many internal and external actors, so many factors, a lot of our, our objectives are in direct tension with one another. But I see Putin playing checkers here, when this really is a five-dimensional chess game. And you really need to be very careful and deliberate in terms of how you move your pieces because it will affect your position in one of these other strata. And I don't see Putin doing that. I think he has used brute force, whether you're talking about Ukraine, you're talking about Syria, and he's hoping that the chips are going to fall in the right place. Now, I think he's been able to achieve a fair amount of tactical progress, but as far as the longer-term effort, uh, my money's still on uh, the United States. And the longer-term effort, how would you explain what that is? How are we going to bring some type of law and order and security to Syria and Iraq, as well as the broader Middle East, so that those countries and those peoples, along with Russia and the United States and the rest of the world, are able to operate in that area to common advantage, as opposed to feeding the forces of extremism and terrorism and militarism. And again, I think that based on his, his background, KGB background, I think he is somebody who always wants to use force and not use uh, maybe a more strategic and thoughtful approach on this. Uh, and so I, and I, have, I have interacted with my Russian counterparts. I was up in, in Moscow a couple months ago trying to, again, convince them that we, the United States, are really serious about trying to bring this conflict to a close. But it has to be one that is not just going to be a near-term solution and keep the embers burning because that's just going to lead to even greater problems in the future. And did you feel you made much progress in no. convincing them? <laughs> uh, some. My, I think we were making some progress, unfortunately. I think when the Russians saw that we've been in a cessation of hostilities, believe it or not, in Syria for the past several months, it's anything but in a lot of the areas. The regime forces, including the Russians, the Iranians, Syrians, and Hezbollah, continue to um, strangle Aleppo and to cut it off from the outside world. Uh, and I think when the Russians saw that they could make progress on the battlefield during this period of cessation, they wanted to continue to push the advantage in the battlefield while still discussing the, the political aspects of this with us. And I think I have not been convinced that the Russians are serious about following through on some of the commitments they made, whether it be in the cessation of hostilities or some of these other understandings that we're trying to reach that is going to bring the level of violence down. I think they talk a good game, but I have not seen them follow through with a genuine interest in what is good for that country as opposed to what is good for them. Okay. Staying on Russia, I mean, it's clear that Russia has tried to influence elections in the past, just as in Germany, in France. Um, if this DNC hack proves to be Russia, is that a game changer for you? How would, be, how would intelligence be, uh, play a role in responding to that? Since this talk was held in July, Russian President Vladimir Putin has responded to the hacking accusations. He told Bloomberg News, Russia is not responsible for the release of thousands of Democratic National Committee emails and documents. He added it's important the content in the emails was given over to the public. The DNC servers were hacked right before the Democratic National Convention. 
Well, let me first say that with all the press reports that are out there about you know, the hacking that supposedly has gone on and the various networks, anytime there is hacking like that and there's a release of you know, proprietary information, it is a crime. And so the legitimate organization, the right organization, the U.S. government to investigate such a crime is law enforcement and the FBI working with the other uh, entities. And so that is undergoing the investigation. And who is responsible for whatever happened there, I think, is to be determined. I know a lot of people are jumping to conclusions there. But I, I do think that we need to take stock of who is responsible for this. And as I think the government, as well as others, have been saying for the past number of years, the capabilities of foreign actors, whether they be nation states, subnational actors, companies that are working on behalf of, of governments, are able to carry out these cyber activities that can disable, that can destroy, that can manipulate our systems and our networks. And so therefore, as we're moving more and more into this internet of things where we're all going to be interconnected, the vulnerabilities that exist are significant. And this is the domain where most human activity takes place right now. And so as a country, as a government, as a people, we need to be mindful of the havoc that could be wrought, not just in terms of taking down an electric grid, but in terms of the potential to manipulate the foundation of our democracy, which is an election. So we really need to make sure that we as a people agree and reach a consensus on what the government's role, along with the private sector, should be to safeguard that environment that holds our security and our prosperity within it. And if we're not able to reach that consensus, I think we're gonna be facing these serious challenges and threats. And that's why as there was this great debate between a certain law enforcement national agency and a certain private sector organization about encryption, that is just symptomatic of the issue that we have to grapple with. What is the right of the government? If we're a country of laws and a rule of law prevails, what should the government be able to do and be able to access in order to protect the welfare of its citizenry? It's not as though CIA and NSA and FBI officers are out there wanting to get into somebody's email account and read it. We want to be able to ensure the protection of civil liberties and privacy rights, while at the same time safeguarding that system that everybody's lives are attached to. And just like over the years when we were able to determine what's the role of law enforcement on the, our streets, what's the, the, the role of the government to keep our, our airports and our aircraft safe, and in the maritime arena, same way is the digital domain, which is the new frontier. But there is the sense of it's, you know, the government is trying to intrude upon us. No, the government, who is the government? This attitude of the sort of we was then. I'm a guy from New Jersey. You know, I, I, I love this country and I love the work that I do. I have the best job in the world and I'm, I'm trying to make sure that my children, my grandchildren are going to be able to use this digital environment for their future security and prosperity. And unfortunately, I think there has been a real misrepresentation and mischaracterization of what the government is trying to do. And I've heard some senior technologists and others say when the government says there shouldn't be encryption, that's the last thing the government says. The government wants strong encryption. At the same time, the government wants to be able to carry out its fundamental responsibility of protecting for the welfare of its people. And until we actually have this very honest discussion and where the government and the private sector are able to work together because there's not a government solution, that digital domain is owned and operated 90% by the private sector. 
this is going to be groundbreaking in terms of how the government and the private sector need to work together in order to ensure the common good. So do you think the conversation between the FBI and Apple over encryption was a healthy conversation to start? It's, it sparked it, but I must say there was the polarization then. Mm -hmm. In terms of people were, again, misrepresenting what Jim Comey wanted to do. Talk about, well, you want a backdoor, you want all of this. No, we want to deal with technologies now that can make impenetrable systems that terrorists and others can take advantage of. So when a if a, a judge issues a writ that says a safety deposit box in a bank must be opened up because there's something in there, either inculpatory or exculpatory of a crime, or something that's going to allow us to prevent a crime, the bank owner has a legal obligation to open it up. Same thing with a warehouse owner or somebody who owns an apartment building. Now, private sector companies are getting the ability to say to the government and to the courts, and to our system of laws, no, I'm going to determine what the government is going to be able to see or not. No. Well, I, we think they're going to get that ability. We don't know yet, right? Because it hasn't really been tested. And people before. say that, well, you know, if you have a technology that, is, that allows the government to do that, then everybody's going to exploit right. that vulnerability. Right. It's a legitimate question and issue that needs to be addressed. But let's do it without this sort of breathless, you know, accusations about what the government is trying to do. No. And people say, well, if the U.S. companies are going to be limited in terms of what they can do and has to make it available then, our foreign competitors are going to seize that field. Well, come on. The U.S. basically is the predominant uh, country in this digital environment. And right now, you know, Russia and China are not rules of law. And so, you know, this is a country that firmly believes in the rule of law. Otherwise, chaos is going to reign. And if we want chaos to reign, okay, let this cyber environment go and let the terrorists and the extremists and the criminals and the pedophiles and others have their way in that environment. And I don't think that's the world and the country that we want to live in. So so I just want to turn to one more thing and then we'll go to questions. And, And you mentioned China. And and we haven't talked very much about China the last couple of days here at the Security Forum. And it's been an adversary in in two big areas, Uh, one on the hacking issue and the other in the South China Sea. So how is the agency working those two issues? And can you talk a little bit about how your new digital directorate plays a role in that? We established the digital directorate because that digital environment affects our profession just the way it affects everybody's lives. And so how we operate around the world. We Can have you a responsibility. What the digital directorate is? The digital directorate is the unit within the uh, CIA that has responsibility not just for protecting our systems and networks and databases, but also being able to understand all the implications of that digital environment. So we have to operate clandestinely around the world. In order to do that clandestinely, you don't want to have your identity of CIA revealed. But now with all the biometrics that are out there and the CCTVs that are out there, as well as any time you use your ATM, or you use your credit card, you create digital dust. And we all have forensic history that we continue to accrue every day that we're operating in terms of where we do something, what we do. So agency officers, when they come into the agency as new employees, they already have a digital history. And sometimes we operate under different types of cover legends. We need to make sure that their, their forensic history, their digital history, matches their cover legend. 
as opposed to exposing them as a CI officer in terms of where they worked, where they trained, or whatever. That's just one example of this digital environment has fundamentally affected our ability to carry out our work. And so this digital environment is, uh, directorate is the one that has responsibility to be thinking about what are the risks, what are the threats, what are the challenges, but also what are the opportunities. And I think for too long, the intelligence community was pushing off technology and saying, no, we need to stay clear of it. But by staying clear of it, the absence of your presence in that digital environment is very revealing. The absence of your activity means that you are not like others. Right. So you're not you're posting to. a lot on Facebook and tweeting and things? Well, that's a, good that's a good point, because we don't want our officers out there. But the officers who are not out there on Facebook or Twitter, they look different than maybe their counterparts in other places. So these are issues that we're having to grapple with, and that's why we wanted to have a place of really smart people who are thinking about how we can continue to fulfill our responsibilities in this digital environment. Now with, with China, they have this rapacious appetite on virtually everything in terms of commercial, trade, business, around the world, as, mm -hmm. as we well know. And that digital environment is one that they readily exploit. And we have called them on it a number of times in terms of the types of things that they're doing to just rake up and vacuum up things that are going to advance their, their economic interests, their commercial interests. Now, we all operate in that environment, but there are some things that we consider to be sort of you know, off limits. And so we've had serious conversations with them at the highest levels of government. Whether or not now they're not doing it as much, whether they're being more careful when they do it, because I think there was a bit of sloppiness on the part of some of them, and that's why they were, were caught. But if they're doing things against US companies or in US soil here, they are breaking the law. And good on the FBI for holding individuals who are participating in that accountable. But one of the real challenges in the cyber realm is that a lot of times these nation states or countries will use a couple of cutouts. So it's two or three hops right. before you get back to the intelligence agency, whatever that's doing, and say, aha but it's attenuated, so it's much more difficult for attribution purposes. Right. The South China Sea, uh, I was out in Singapore uh, about six weeks ago or so at the Shangri-La conference and met with all my ASEAN, my Southeast Asian counterparts, talking to them about the United States, although we have all these other issues we're grappling with, we still believe very strongly in um, our interests in Asia and our relationships with our partners and our allies out there. And the, with the South China Sea issue, China and a number of countries have disputed claims over these uh, either islands or outcroppings in the sea. And China is an adherent to the Law of the Sea Treaty, and there is a, a mechanism for resolution of disputes. They refuse to acknowledge that, as the recent uh, ruling that came out in favor of the Philippines. Now, a big country like China and a lot of the smaller countries in Southeast Asia how fair is that in terms of dispute resolution, unless you have an independent third party? And the United States has come out very strongly to say there needs to be some mechanism that is going to be fair, that is going to take the rights and claimants uh, of the claimants into consideration and put forth its ruling. And it does have the force of international law. Mm -hmm. And so we continue to engage with our partners out there, and uh, there's senior level discussions taking place between the US government and the Chinese government. And, and hopefully these issues will, will be resolved peacefully. But uh, we are not ignoring, we're not turning away in any respect China. In fact, as President Obama said, we have an Asia pivot to make sure that our presence in all of its dimensions, political, economic, military, security, is felt by the, the folks out there. Let me take you back just briefly to digital dust. 
and in particular, the hacking of the OPM files and the 21 million uh, pieces of information that disappeared from OPM's files. The hacking of the files Dina Temple Raston is referring to was a malicious cyber intrusion carried out against the federal government, according to NBC News. The hack began in 2014 and targeted the Federal Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. A group of hackers in China was arrested for the breach. Does that make it harder to have someone who's in your agency do their work, enter China? Do, have you seen any sort of blowback from that, that their digital dust basically is now in the hands of someone else? Any type of pillaging of U.S. data systems, federal government data systems, is uh, a problem for government agencies. Whether or not it's identifying information about individuals or programs or the work that we're doing. And so the OPM was a very good example of a very large-scale you know, theft of, of data that was proprietary to the U.S. government. But a lot of the legacy practices and databases that were put in place when computers first came on board remain today and trying to protect them and now change a lot of your business practices overnight because of the vulnerabilities and the ability of these countries and others to ravage them, it takes time. The federal government is a big, big organization and enterprise. And so what we're trying to do uh, and the work that's being done by the, the White House, Lisa Monaco is here and has the lead for the White House on the cyber front, I think making a lot of progress on trying to better protect our systems so that we have confidence that they're not going to be stolen and then used against us. So you haven't seen any indication that so far it's been used against people who work for your agency who are trying to travel around. We are tracking that and other issues very closely. <laughs> okay. Did you want to say more about that? Not to you. Not to me. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Just really quickly, I, I, I wanted to just ask a quick question about Iran, and then we'll go uh, to questions. Uh, given the agreement that's uh, occurred, um, do you see a change in the conversation or a tenor in the conversation? Are you experiencing any change as a result of the nuclear agreement? I, I think it, it was the right thing to do in terms of preventing Iran from pursuing these, this nuclear weapons program. It, it was a boost for President Rouhani, who we consider to be much more moderate than a lot of other elements within the Iranian government. He needs to have continued traction in order to gain more support. There is tension between hardliners and moderates within the Iranian government. When we talk about Iran, frequently people you know, consider it a monolith. It's not a monolith, just like the U.S. political system. There are differences within the environment. <laughs> and so we're going to be watching this very carefully as they go to their presidential election next year in terms of uh, how this balance and this tension that exists within the government. But Rouhani, I think, has demonstrated his interest in bringing Iran back into the community of nations. My concern is that I think a lot of Iranians were thinking that there was going to be a windfall in their personal lives as the money was freed, was freed up. This is going to take time. The money, the revenue that's flowing into Iran is being used to s support its currency, to provide you know, uh, monies to the departments and agency, build up its infrastructure. And so it's going to be a while before the effects are felt more broadly among the Iranian people. It right. will happen, but it's going to take some time. And are you and people in your agency feeling any effects? Does it seem like the relationship is more positive, or is it too early? To My talk? relationship with the Iranians? Yeah. I don't have a relationship with the Iranians. <laughs> so it's, it hasn't been affected one whit. It hasn't been. <laughs> okay. 
Or do you feel a difference in the tenor of the relationship or not particularly? I, 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 in the tenor relationship, there's still a lot of discussions going on between the United States government and the Iranian government on a number of outstanding issues to include how the international financial system is going to be able to now react to an Iran that is less you know, encumbered by sanctions. So there is a dialogue. There are, there are frustrations, certainly, on the Iranian side. Uh, but I, I do think that so far the adherence has been good to the uh, uh, negotiated agreement. So I, I do believe that things are, are moving positively, slowly but positively. Okay, fair enough. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Please um, thank you, director, for being with us. John Brennan directs the Central Intelligence Agency. Dina Temple-Raston reports on terrorism and efforts to combat it for NPR. They spoke at the Aspen Security Forum in Aspen, Colorado on July 29th. Next week, we'll hear from survivors of the Syrian war. Mariella Shocker was desperate to go to school in the United States. I was running under bombs and mortars falling with a huge lack of electricity and power just to send my applications to different schools and programs. We'll hear from her and others about what the situation's like on the ground, what's being done to help refugees, and what needs to happen to stop the fighting. That's next week on Aspen Ideas To Go. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Follow the Aspen Institute on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.